This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio. I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So, I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn, pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children. And do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Episode 1, presenting the prologue and Chapter 1. Everyone was out. If they weren't physically in the town square or on the promenade, then they were hanging out of second or third floor windows overlooking the crowd. When they'd first hit the streets, they had been chatty and eager, and the sound of their anticipation could be heard anywhere in the ship. Family and friends found one another and coalesced in little overlapping groups. Smiling and hugging and clapping one another on the back, jokes were made, laughter rippled throughout. Landing on Oxalis, the end of the journey that they had all been born into, would have been enough to gin up all of this energy all by itself. But the landing protocol had only served to amplify the feeling. In the 48 hours before planetfall, each resident and their families were tasked with securing every part of their quarters. There were meticulous instructions for stowing every loose item, latching every door and hatch, sealing up drawers and locking furniture into place. Once they had guaranteed that not one thing they owned could move even a centimeter, they slept one more night in space. For most of them, this meant rolling around, trying to sleep, and failing miserably. Then, the next morning, they listened to a series of announcements about what to expect, and when, and for how long. This basically amounted to a whole lot of hurry up and wait, until their landing window arrived. That happened at 12.11, just past Seoul noon. In every residence in the habitation bay, there were the jump seats. Just a seat that folded down from the wall to reveal a bunch of tucked away straps and buckles. These jump seats had been there forever, for the span of every single passenger's life and their parents' lives and some of their grandparents' lives. The jump seats were quaint relics of a future that always seemed to be far in the distance. They were uncomfortable oddities for children to construct games around and furniture of last resort at parties. Then it was 11.30 
on landing day, and a general announcement came over the calm in every single home saying that it was time to strap in, and suddenly these dopey little things, the jump seats everyone had been working around for a little more than a century, suddenly sprang to their heroic purpose. Then, at a quarter till, there was a final reminder to strap in. Then, at noon, a declaration that everyone must be strapped in by that point. Everyone was. Then, at ten past, the awkwardly phrased announcement that atmospheric breach will begin in T-minus one minute. In the nine minutes it took for the Contiki to get from Oxalus's exosphere to good old-fashioned dirt, which was nothing if not new and novel to all the people who had grown up in the ship's belly. There was a lot of vomiting and a lot of praying. There were a small handful of people who suffered from a debilitating fear of landing, a condition native to the centuries since planetary colonization had become a viable life choice. This was called atmospheric burn phobia which, everyone agreed, was a little on the nose even for the psychiatric profession. All of those unfortunate souls had been issued mandatory sedation packets, and each of them spent the entire landing procedure in a state of euphoric half-sleep. Everyone else had white-knuckled the grip pads of their jump seats and gritted their teeth. Those who had forgone breakfast fared better than the rest. Then... They were there. They'd spent their entire lives going, and then they arrived. There was a moment of silence. There were the noises that the ship made as it adjusted to being in a resting state for the first time ever, but no one spoke. Then, over the calm, Landing complete. Welcome to Oxalis. People cheered. Some burst into tears. They got themselves unstrapped from their jump seats and hugged their loved ones. Then they all headed out into the main street and into the square to be with the people, the community they had been a part of from birth. The people they shared everything with would be the people they would share this most extreme and important change with. And they needed to be together. They all did. And there they were, gathered together, waiting. The calm burst to life once again. Attention, citizens of the Contiki, this is Captain Lee. There will be a brief cessation in internal illumination in the habitation area. By which I mean, the lights are about to go out. This will be a brief interval of darkness during which we ask you to remain calm. This is standard landing protocol. This was nonsense. There was nothing standard about this and nothing protocol. Captain Lee was simply a man with a flair for the theatrical, and to prove it, five seconds after he snapped the comm off, the entire ship's interior went pitch black. A couple of seconds went by. There was a girl. Her name was Maxine, and she enjoyed this part for the short moment it lasted the most. She was standing next to her adoptive father, the person she was closest to in the world. All around her were familiar faces, 
But when the lights went out and she could no longer see them, there was just the slightest bit of relief. There was just a moment of comfort in the illusion of being alone. People started to murmur, but before anyone could speak, there was a sound. It came from high up on the ship's hull. It was the sound of hydraulics kicking to life, panels shifting, some of them never having moved before, seals released and popped and exhaled, and then, first through a sliver, then through a crack, then the shape was lost to the spectacle as sunlight flooded into the hold. The passengers of the Contiki, the citizens of the town the Contiki had become over three generations, all of them turned their eyes toward the sun of their new home and stared in awestruck wonder. Captain Lee had a flair for the theatrical. Then the egress hatches, which lined the habitation bay on each side, and which had remained closed since the first generation of passengers had boarded 112 years earlier, heaved and sighed and opened to this strange new world, and each of the passengers turned their faces toward the incoming breeze and breathed deep the air of their future and all that came with it. Chapter 1 Maxine had just about gone further than anyone in the whole colony, or at least that would be the case in the next three steps. In the next three steps, she would be below the western ridgeline, and thus out of visual contact with the Contiki. It was no mean feat to get out of visual range of the hulking city ship. Now, just a city, no longer a ship, but still enormous. Even from this distance, you still had to turn your head to take in all 800 meters of the port side. It was something to see resting there in the valley. The great gray beast with all of its steel and glass, now that the shielding panels had been retracted, looked distinctly out of place, surrounded by the green and purple and oranges of the local grass. In space, where she and the Contiki had been born, though the ship was her senior by nearly an Earth-standard century, the Contiki had been a creature of its element and in its element, weightless and fast, its bulk no hindrance. Heck, compared to the rest of the things that moved freely through the vacuum, the city ship was downright sprightly. But now, planet-side, it seemed to be pinned by its own unfathomable tonnage, trapped on the ground as surely as it would be if they'd buried the thing. It had been plopped down in the valley for coming up on two weeks, and it still made what everyone kept calling settling sounds. Creaks and groans that reverberated throughout the vast hollow interior. All 2,345 emigres would look up at once like they were the sounds of great flying birds above them. 
To Maxine, it sounded like the long complaints of something slowly dying. It was like they'd hobbled some majestic beast of burden after a lifetime of service, and to her, that seemed... disrespectful. Cold. Selfish. The city ship had been, was still for now, their home after all. She looked around for people. The whole trek out to the ridge, she had been waiting for the stomach-sinking sound of someone calling out to her to find out what she was doing and if it was okay and had she let Sumner know what she was up to. But it had never come. Really, she couldn't recall seeing anyone at all, not even in the ship. She had walked out the front door of her residence, across the promenade down Lopez Crossway, and pretty much right out of an egress bay uh, without passing a single soul. This was something of a relief. She'd had so many conversations in the past few days where she was the person not saying what they were actually thinking, which now that she was thinking about it was pretty much every conversation she could remember having in her lifetime. But this time it was always on the same topic. Second day after landfall, she had run into Jeannie, who ran the game center. Hey, kiddo! Jeannie called everyone too young for the adult VR's kiddo. Good news! The DC approved my footprint! It had taken Maxine a minute to realize she was talking about the footprint of her new gaming center. The one outside the ship, not on the ship. Oh, uh, awesome. Congratulations. It's going to be twice this size, and I'll be able to put in some cool stuff, non-VR stuff. I found schematics on the Omni for all of these retro-style games where you actually throw things at targets or shoot fake animals or, like, punch a clown in the face. Maxine was smiling along, but there must have been something lacking in her reaction because Jeannie felt the need to add... And of course, there'll be twice as many VR coffins. That sounds amazing. It'll be the coolest thing in town, I'm sure. She added a few watts to her semi-sincere smile, and that seemed to get the job done. Honestly, Maxine had just had some version of that conversation so many times that it felt like she was caught in a constant loop. Everyone was full of big plans, about what their life was going to be like off the Contiki. And as they told Maxine all about it, she thought about their store or their home or the game center sitting empty and covered in dust, or more likely, dismantled for parts. Just a space in gray where color had been. It was sad, but it wasn't as sad as it should be. It was sad to Maxine the way things in movies were sad, not in the way things in your own life were sad. None of this, none of this felt like her life. Everything felt at a distance, as everything had since the accident. And the big tomorrow town outside the ship didn't feel like her life either, and some part of her had thought that it would. She wasn't sad for what was being lost. She was sad that she was neither losing nor gaining. She was sad that she was breaking even, staying the same, while everything around her changed.
But hey, there was more than just the town or the potential town being offered, wasn't there? There was a horizon line out there that no one was talking about. They were all looking three feet in front of themselves. They were being rational, incremental, following the strict protocols for debarkation and settlement. They were being responsible citizens. But Maxine had no more role in that new scenario than she'd had in the old one. But maybe, maybe she could. She could be the one that got out there and met the neighbors. This had grown from a comforting whim to an obsession. She had gone from staring at the open egress bays and idly fantasizing to trying to figure out how she could get around the military guys that had come out of deep freeze to stand around in the door frames and stare half-lidded at people coming and going out to the settlement zone. She'd even made an approach at some point, sidling up to one of the gray uniforms in a tragic attempt at casual. He was a sandy-haired guy with a stony expression, and it had taken him several seconds to realize that Maxine was there, smiling at him. When he saw her, he was all business. Authorization. Oh, I was just, uh, having a peek. And with that, she made an exaggerated show of leaning her top half toward the frame and the sunlight beyond. The time for peeking was over a week ago. Now access to the exterior is limited to construction crew and people with special authorization. I will need you to return to a safe position in the interior. Um, ma'am. Maxine raised a sly eyebrow. I could be construction crew. Maxine had never really attempted coy in real life. And she'd actually never seen anyone attempt coy in real life. She'd only seen it in movies and VRs. So the only way for her to gauge just how embarrassing her version had been was the expression of pain that had crossed the soldier's face. It was enough. Ma'am, I will need you to return to a safe position in the interior. Maxine had returned to a safe position in the interior, her face burning the entire way. As the days passed, she found herself spending more time spying on various escape routes from behind corners, from gangways, from the side of her eye as she made an attempt to casually stroll past. The whole time, the desire to get out of the ship, out of town, and on to whatever was beyond, had grown steadily stronger. She did not mention this desire to Sumner. He would ask her how her day was, she would mumble, he would nod. There were some benefits to having your legal guardian be afraid of asking too many questions about the private life of a teenage girl. But slowly, as her obsession took up more and more space in her brain, Fewer and fewer people seemed to be standing guard at the egress bays. Initially, she had taken this as a natural relaxation of the rules, as the disasters the rules were meant to guard against had failed to materialize. Basically, she assumed people were just getting comfortable. 
Then, today, she had gone to one of her favorite lookout spots, and the open door to the outside world was totally and completely unguarded. There was no one, not at the door, not with an eye shot, and as she crept closer, not outside. She'd had a notion that when the time came, she would prepare a kit and grab her gear and light out like a true explorer. But all of that fell away in the face of the most wide-open opportunity she had encountered in all the days of her surveillance, and suddenly, she just made a sprint for the door. And then, she was out. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening. Thank you.